live from the margin of error. You're listening to Alan Brandstetter talking to Carson Starkey. Uh, Carson and I were just talking about what's going on in our lives and uh, the facts millennials will have to face. Unfortunately, Jimmy Buffett's not building a real-life Margaritaville for people our age. <laughs> he uh, he announced he announces I guess this week I don't know how long ago but you know Jimmy Buffett wants to build a real-life Margaritaville for people 55 years old or older, 55 years and up. So and let's not discount this is on top of an illustrious career accomplishments in the industry, uh, none of which come to mind. But I'm sure if you, I'm sure if you were to ask, now we're gonna get a, just a tsunami of hate mail instead from of from Jimmy. Yeah, from Parrotheads. So feel free if you are 63 years old and wear Hawaiian t-shirts on a weekday, you feel free to write mean things about me because it's it's too late now. That We've place is the floodgates. That place is gonna be full of a lot of old SEC fans with golf carts with flat screen TVs mounted on the back of them. <laughs> <laughs> they'll have paid they'll have paid a substantially larger <laughs> amount for those golf carts than their kids will have for some of their their you know uh rent or their one bedroom their their two bedroom houses but by god it'll be worth it to drive around with a shotgun on a golf cart you know talk about how the young people don't understand economics so <laughs> well if you have that any, is very true if you have any questions about what happened to all that money that your parents supposedly saved up for your college education there it is <laughs> yeah plasma screen tvs gun rack holders on golf carts and elaborate margarita machine i would hope <laughs> right i don't know what else you would yeah on. and you were you know were you talking about jimmy buffett's long list of like professional accomplishments as an artist you know for as useless as the Grammys are, he's hasn't won a Grammy. And as, as the joke as the joke on The Simpsons goes, I was hoping to win a real award, but <laughs> you know, right? That was the joke. Oh, it's a great Homer wins the Grammy yeah. and then throws and then throws it away. Yeah. So and Buffett hasn't even done that. And I'll also point out that like founding a real life, like uh, like a theme park based on your your avoir or your oeuvre. Excuse me. I'm better. Yeah. So uh, found, <laughs> founding founding a theme park based on your oeuvre is not something that Bruce Springsteen would even consider. No. Right. No. Well, I guess I guess his theme park is Atlantic City. Right. Well, but in a in a sort of uh, fan fiction kind of way, right? Of course, a semi failed town of less than forty thousand with part time casino workers, I hope, is not Bruce Springsteen's vision for America. <laughs> on the other hand. <laughs> On the other hand, Jimmy Buffett, who probably makes whatever meager income from music, air quotation mark, <laughs> music that he plays um, at the Grand Hinkley Casino, right? That's probably more that's probably more realistic for a handful, like for a smattering of of eighty to one hundred fifteen people who wear, like I said, Hawaiian T-shirts on weekdays. Um, that is entirely in keeping with Jimmy Buffett's, you know, accomplishments, right? Yeah. So. He's not in any, he's not in any hurry to perform for three and a half to four hours because nobody wants to wait while nobody wants to be away from the buffet that yeah. long before they go back and play slots. So well, I mean, anyway. so my imagination fails me. But what what activities entail you know a Jimmy Buffett theme park like a resort? <laughs> Margaritaville. What do, what do you do to fill your time besides drink margaritas and do like do they do like I don't know, like have hula dances or uh, do they scream well, at black kids or <laughs> like, I don't know. That's true. It's yeah. Watch, watch Clint Eastwood movies, 
smoke probably Marlboro Reds and complain about the quality of hamburger. You know what I mean? I don't know either. You're right. It's I bet you, that you you sit around and you yeah. talk about that one time you smoked marijuana. Yeah, in the seventies when you when you were listening to Merle Haggard or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> When you were when you were rebelling against the parents, yeah, exactly. I mean, I saw a picture of this of that article I sent you, and it was just like there's a pool, and then there's like seven bars. It can't. Right. It's it, got to be more than that. Like, well, what are you going to do if you're sixty? If you're sixty three years old, and like you said, and you watch four hours of cable news and you enjoy. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. It's, you know, you yeah. get drunk in a like, pool and watch cable news. That's right. But if, but if, and even then, there's a limit. Of, there's a point of diminishing return. If it's seven thirty at night and you've been watching since three thirty, and you've burned through two packs of cigarettes and spent seventeen dollars on cocktails, what what are you going to do at eight o'clock? Right? There, you're all your friends are are either napping to like try to get their second wind. Even then, they're going to go to bed at ten thirty. Yeah. Right. Like, of course, of course, you can go to the bar again, but. At that point, what what good is that going to do? You're not going to you're not going to meet any new friends because all of your friends are uh, you, you know they're either there yeah. or they live in neighborhoods with gates on them. So um, yeah, okay. you're right. I don't I don't know the answer either. So that's let's a fair let's point. go. So I, I pulled up the article. So uh, this is going to be built in Daytona Beach because because oh, <laughs> why not? It'll be for people. It's going to be a uh, community for people 55 years and older. Uh, and it promises to reflect the lifestyle embraced in Jimmy Buffett's songs because Jimmy Buffett isn't selling music; he's selling a lifestyle. That well, and as evidenced by his ticket sales and his total number of albums, so he certainly—that is the most true and accurate statement I can think of. Jimmy Buffett <laughs> is not selling music; that is oh, absolutely true. And this thing—it's—it's going to have six thousand nine hundred homes in the community. There'll be a pool with cabanas uh, instead of a park and a statue, so like most town squares. So it's going to be based on like the fabricated uh, small town, you know, the retirement town. Right. So they have a pool, a cabana, food, music, and beverages will be a big part of the community, along with a relaxing fitness center, an indoor lap pool, a spa, and an outdoor resort style pool. Um, uh, oh, and, I gotta and uh, wonder, you'll never know when or where Jimmy Buffett may show up to concert. I don't know that that's a selling point for most Americans, but okay. How much would you pay for uh, one of these no, houses? I guess. See, and this is the, this is immediately we run into the problem now. Is like we're again we're talking about wasted resources and economic sprawl. I imagine with these kind of amenities, now they're going to charge probably two, three hundred thousand dollars for this, right? I wouldn't pay. <laughs> 50,000, but they're probably going to charge a lot. Am I right? Yeah. So, so we have something to measure it against the average, I, what the average student loan debt I, load for, for our people, our age is what? $50,000. Yeah. probably. Uh, right. So the, the homes uh, in the Jimmy Buffett community, which will be built in the old Florida and Key West architectural styles uh, will go from the low 200,000s to the mid 300,000s. <sighs> Just what I thought. Yep, no, that's <laughs> definitely, like I said, thank God. Yeah, thank God the Federal Housing Administration is subsidizing something useful. Thank God. No, I, I, just what the say too, I wonder what the racial demographic on that community is going to be. And, and on the corollary to that is who will be the employees at that pool? Who will be the employees at those buffets, those bars, and those restaurants? We know the answer in advance. 
I bet you one of the activities that they'll be doing is blockbusting surrounding communities so they can expand. <laughs> <laughs> and some lighthearted, some lighthearted yeah, blockbusting. <laughs> Definitely no. And again, like everything else in Florida, it will be yeah the old South against people whose last names are hard to pronounce for the old South. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't look if you're Haitian, uh, Dominican, Cuban, uh, of, of you know Spanish-speaking descent, uh, I would brace for the great Caucasian hur- uh, hurricane of Jimmy Buffett fans that are rolling your way in a in a more than destructive manner oh my gosh what a nightmare unless your last name is bautista then you'll yeah, be all right you, yeah and you hate and you hate communists and want your sugar plantation from 1959 returned. <laughs> god almighty all right so uh yeah i guess we can people i like to think that people listen to the show because they they care about what's going on in our lives um so <laughs> Carson, how's life, man? I hope so you, too. you were you were until very recently a corporate uh, counsel, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was working. Uh, I was doing a a com- uh, compliance job for a construction company. And how long did that in last? Greater, in hours. It la- my private sector my private <laughs> my private sector career lasted uh, forty hours. Exactly forty hours. <laughs> so wait, forty hours, forty billable hours, or forty hours in forty. Total? 40, 40 at billable hours. Yes. Monday through Friday at 9, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Yes, mm. exactly. So uh, I now am an organizer for a labor union, which is fantastic to That's borrow the... from to yeah, to borrow from one Bob Dylan. The times they are changing. So <laughs> uh, do they do they look at you any differently because you're, you're coming from the sec- the private sector? I only told the one supervisor that I came from the private sector. As far as the other organizers know, I've yeah. always been righteous, so we just I just won't discuss that with it'll be one of those <laughs> ugly secrets that nobody talks about until they discover it. So Well, it's just one of those things um, you had to do. It's like it's like porn. You know, it's just something you Yeah, right. Ask Arnold Schwarzenegger about that. <laughs> um, Sylvester Stallone as well, the Italian Stein. And that's right. Amen. Yep. No one no one's getting a movie deal for free. There are sacrifices to be made. Absolutely. Shanning Tatum as well well not quite porn but he was like a dancer or something no not thunder down under but like yeah like uh isn't he from florida or california something like that probably he seems like a florida guy he kind of got that dumb florida face right and the haircut to match yeah (laughs) that's about a millionaire who still pays who still pays like 12 bucks for haircuts so anyway so are you feeling good about the state of labor are you going to be able to turn the Um, ship around i would certainly hope so based on the amount of doors that we knock um Yeah, I mean, again, private sector saturation for collective bargaining stands at 7%. Total collective bargaining nationwide as a, per, as a percentage of the workforce is at approximately 11%. So yeah. we, have some, we have some progress to be made. Yeah, uh, definitely. That the direction can only go up from this point because we're, I would think, I would hope we are as low as we can be. Goodness gracious. Although, again, that's until secretary of, that's until the next secretary of labor I guess it's I guess it's a guy who was opposed to the Voting Rights Act, and eventually it'll be Ted Cruz. Uh, <laughs> that's until they outlaw. That's until they write rules outlawing um, any kind of collective bargaining. So we'll see. Yeah. The future is bright, as I see it from Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, the future is bright, at least in my little corner of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. You got to believe. Yeah. Amen. We all do um, better. When we all do better. So, so what does 
the what does your day as an organizer look like? Do you exchange large uh, amounts of money in small bills uh, with mafia <laughs> bosses and stuff? Or how how does that work? We can't every t every time I ask about Marlon Brando and whether or not we'll have an opportunity to go on the docks and sort of decide who who works and who doesn't. They yeah. keep telling me that that's not something that happens on a daily basis. <laughs> they, they insist that my perception of what collective bargaining and organizing for uh, labor uh, is, out of, is out of touch with reality. <laughs> if they've ever seen Jack Nicholson's movie about Hoffa, and they, again, tell me that that's not representative <laughs> of what we do in a day. So I have to presume that they're right and that, we have to, that we're doing something different. So yeah. it is, it is eight hour, it's eight hours a day of door knocking um, mm. across greater Minnesota, Twin Cities area. Yeah, it's connecting with the people who are uh, mostly home healthcare workers. So you're actually you're targeting a specific group of workers, right? That we are. Okay. Yep. For uh, for a new contract ratification and for future and for and for basically bracing for future attacks against millionaires and billionaires who want to stop people yeah. from making the exorbitant sum of money of twelve to thirteen dollars an hour. Yeah. Has the reception been good or just fair or? Um, it, it's generally positive. I mean, again, the, the home healthcare workers of Minnesota voted for a union uh, about two and a half years ago, and they're, they, they thus far seem pretty committed to keeping it, so that's a good sign. Um, if the people that fund the Koch Brothers Network view of, of, of the landscape, that will change. But um, yeah, right. again, we'll, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, right, exactly, because everyone, everyone's just dying to make less money. The, <laughs> This is the, this is the new country that we all want. Is we all would prefer working for nine dollars an hour because that's worked out so well for Walmart employees. And then, uh, and and watching rich people shift the uh, tax burden onto us, so it's gonna yeah. be a great time I guess to be alive. I guess, as, I guess as far as I can tell, what we're all really shooting for is a spot on the TV show, the the TV show Shark Tank, <laughs> with uh, Mark Cuban and a number of other well-to-do. So. I mean, again, basically, you go beg them for help, and then they just sort of, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down on whether or not to invest in your venture. <laughs> it's um, it's the American version. It's the American version of the microloan. Oh, Peter Thiel must have had a hand in writing the script for this because it's just too perfect. Like, if you ask nicely, rich people will improve the quality of your of your life. You should go away. Uh, I feel like that's a Baffler article sometime down the road, but we can get to that later. Yeah, yeah. Well, so in my life, uh, still working at the grocery store, um, we we are having a a lot of people leave. A lot of people are leaving, so we're at this uh, with these type of jobs. You have spurts of new hiring, so I'm going to be an old hand, sadly, at the grocery store soon. <laughs> So, um, so that's still going on. That wouldn't wouldn't that entail a management position event? You could wear that sweet management T-shirt. I know, supervisor T-shirt. I refuse to work more than twenty hours because the only thing that keeps me alive is the fact that, uh, or the only thing that keeps my hopes up is the fact that I'm a part-time worker and I'm not doing this as my quote career. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and. A millennial, so you deserve whatever hardship, <laughs> and you deserve whatever hardship comes your way. Yeah, exactly. Which is even more pressing because I guess we could say it now because we made it the announcement officially on Facebook, which is I guess as close as you can get to uh, making an official announcement. Uh, my wife is pregnant, so we're expecting a child. Woo! 
Yeah, we're expecting a child in August. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of soul searching about what I'm going to do with my life now that I'm 34 years old. <laughs> I need, <laughs> I need to, to well, re again, reassess with, with the with the bevy of with the bevy of economic opportunities under the new regime. Is not to succeed again. Uh, that's just from what I understand. Yeah, man. That's the that's the current consensus economic wisdom. There aren't even those government jobs for me to like mooch off of as a veteran because he did that federal I keep hiring. I about fees. that. Yeah. Yeah, which over which overwhelmingly negatively affects veterans. You'll go on USA Jobs, right? Uh, so that's the the hiring portal for the federal government, and there's a lot of posts that are up, but they say that uh, we won't be filling this post for now because of the hiring freeze. And so they're all posted, but they're not hiring. So it's just like, throw your resumes in here. We'll get to it when we can. So there's a, the, the uncertainty uh, within the, uh, the the federal bureaucratic apparatus is is visible on the hiring site. So, and then there's been, by, there's, also been all, there's also been a lot of layoffs in the State Department too, which if I was to go right. into anything, it would be that, so. Well, and by all means, in the in the interim, you should definitely go find three or four jobs to tide you over. <laughs> instead, of working, instead of working for the federal government or a public entity, work at a, um, you know, a, a mechanic, like a, a gas station yeah. store or a fast food place, because between those three jobs, certainly you should be, a, you should be able to afford a mortgage payment, health insurance, pay back and my student loans, private school education. Yeah, and pay back your student loans on top of everything else. As I understand it, that's still that's still entirely within reach if I am to understand what's being said on CNBC <laughs> business. They know well, they know economics, man. They know economics. Yeah, yeah. It's just unfortunately my work ethic. I'm I'm just fundamentally a lazy man. So uh, <laughs> God knows, God knows, I've been working since I was 13, but uh, that's beside the point. So. It sounds like the basis for a Merle Haggard song. We got it. We'll get to that for another episode too. So, what well, we need, you know, we need like a, a lefty Merle Haggard because we need to match that anger. Because I like a lot of people don't. I, you know, you need to go if you haven't. You need to go back and listen to Merle Haggard songs because there are some angry shit in there. He's talking about like, uh, like handcuffing people to stumps in swamps and letting alligators eat them and stuff like that. <laughs> Like, we've got to match that anger. Um, <laughs> oh, the uh, dude, the, are the good times over? You yeah. Mean, are you, you what you mean to say is you're you want to express your fury? Like it's yeah. you're you're angry that women are wearing pants. Yeah. No, I know, right? The the cultural changes, like like that's, he's not even he's not even implying yeah. it. Like he's explicitly bemoaning the demise of like the traditional order like and he spells it out he even goes as far like the first line in that song is about is about how much he misses the gold standard like jesus christ yeah. yep absolutely and again women when women would cook and now they're in the workplace <laughs> demanding free health care and birth control because they're communists um i've said this before it's a damn sh i think most liberals and most americans would agree it's a damn shame garth brooks is out of the game now because he was the he was the closest we could get uh, but he's too calm, right? He's too he's too calm and comfortable. And Natalie Maines is too divisive. So I don't know where to go. I, I guess yeah. this is one of those situations I don't have an answer. So no, it was interesting. I went back and I was listening to uh, Garth Brooks, and uh, I was going to send you the a link to the American Honky Tonk Bar Association because you know you're a lawyer and stuff, and I thought it would be funny. <laughs> but 
Garth Garth wrote a line in that talking about how his money is being taken away by the tax man and given to like welfare queens. I was like, Jesus Christ! Like, I guess I guess he knows yeah, his feet, no, who, know. who who fills his bowl. So, right, and Travis Tritt, right? Like, I I would love to think that Lord have mercy on the working man is about how he wants to, um, <laughs> sort of redistribute money away from Exxon Mobil. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, Travis Tritt in real life is nothing like that. So, <laughs> that, as far as I know, that that mustache still swings heavily to the right. Yeah. We, yeah. We have some work to do. It's like you said, we need to we need to find the right spokesperson for that. We got in a Travis Tritt and a Garth Brooks reference in the show. Right? I'm I'm very pleased thus far. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and we're talking about matching that anger, but we're completely ignoring like the whole genre of hip hop. So. Yeah, no, I know, right? Because yeah. we're you know. public. We, uh, yeah, public. No, uh, prophets of rage, man. You got to get uh, yeah. Chuck D and Tom Morello and Zach De La Roca, Killer Mike back. You know, yeah, this, these are the uh, these are the prophets for the future. Yeah, but so, do you think the good times are really over? Um, I would, if I'm to believe everybody around me, no, because it seems like we're on the upswing. Um, <laughs> A majority of a majority of Americans seem to well, a majority of people that voted for Trump are under the impression that the economy has substantially improved, uh, and they were and they felt that way in in November and December even before Donald Trump was in office. So, just his election alone seems to have sort of swung our fortunes in the right direction. Well, I can't wait for it my seems wife. Anyway, I, don't, I I can't wait for our wives to learn how to cook. It's gonna be great. <laughs> I just found the I found the lyrics. I found the lyrics. So here's the uh, here's the refrain um, with that. Uh, I wish a Coke was still cola and a joint was a bad place to be. It was back before Nixon lied to us all on TV, before microwave ovens when a girl could still cook and still would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yep. the best. Yep, yep. It's the best of the free life behind us now. Are the good times really over for good? Holy hell. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Those are the days, man. Those are the days. He got into the again. He, Hagger, yeah. Haggard couldn't even leave it with when a girl could still cook, he had to add and still would because, you because, know, there's nothing yeah. like an uppity woman saying, I'm not going to cook. Yeah. Well, and that represents, <laughs> that represents chaos. That is, that represents, for the same reason the hippies were burning their draft cards and black people were in berets, yeah. uh, it represents a, sort of a triangle of chaos. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why we lost Vietnam. Very much so. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, to, to go back around, I'm yeah. So I'm I'm reconsidering. I'm thinking about my future and the future of my family, and I'll be more than happy to to sell out and uh, and take a job at least where I would be paid fairly and and be useful. So I'm feeling less and less useful these days. But sounds like sounds like something of an un- unrealistic aspiration, but. Maybe you'll have to find the right candidate to express that vision. Someone, what you mean is, what you mean to say is, somebody has to appeal to anxiety. It'll probably be. I'm thinking it's Marco Rubio. I would hope so. Yeah. Oh man, I can't wait for him to get back on the scene. <laughs> oh, so much fertile ground to plow. Oh, I'm so excited. The man who says nothing ever, just like. Yeah, he's under the impression that he is saying a lot, but yeah, uh, but says far less than that. Yep, absolutely true. All right, so uh, we should go to the news. Um, so. So we're actually a week and a half out from our last episode, and a lot has happened. There was, uh, what's his face? The um, one of the communications guys for the Trump administration from Santa Monica, who basically said uh, the powers of the president are are expansive and they should not be questioned. Was it was it Josh Miller or something? Stephen um, Miller. Stephen Miller. Stephen Stephen Miller. 
And that that already seems like ages ago. So rather than attempt to recap everything that happened this week, we picked out a couple topics to talk about. Um, one of the things that happened this week, I guess, that should be noted is uh, that Donald Trump gave an, a 70-minute long press conference, the first press conference he's, he's held since he's been president, where he basically berated the press. It was very uh, con- uh, combative, um, and it effectively kind of sucked up all the oxygen um, in the news coverage. And so everybody has been focusing on that rather than a lot of the other things that are going on which I think we need to get over pretty quick because it, it's a typical Berlusconi move, right? To, you go out and you berate the press and that's all they can talk about for a week. And then they ignore all the kind of hideous things you're doing um, behind the scenes. Did you watch the pre- that press conference at all, Carson? I didn't, I didn't watch it live. I watched the replay. Um, yeah. All the commentary of it on Talking Points Memo. Yeah. Harry on NBC News, but I, I rewatched it uh, to sort of get the full picture afterwards. Um, yeah, it was very, it was very spectacular. It was spectacular to say the least, but to borrow from the immortal yeah. Walter Zobchak of the big Lebowski. Smoking my friend. You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. You mark that frame and you're entering a world of pain. I'm not. A world of pain. Look, dude, I, this is your partner. Is the whole world gone crazy? Uh, we're entering a world of pain, and we don't even know it yet, right? We ha- yeah. we haven't seen the pain. Uh, a guy shouting about how everything is fake news is not proportional; is not equivalent right. to. I care, so we're getting Why there. Did, I didn't have I didn't have much desire to watch it because I mean it just I I guess I understand it was it's outrageous to to like see to be confronted with an American president doing that for over an hour, but it's to me it's like what else? There's nothing more predictable than something like this happening. And so right. I, I didn't want to subjugate myself to watching it for over an hour because it's the same crap he's been doing, frankly, for, for two years now. Um, and we shouldn't expect right. anything more. Um, and if, quite frankly, to me, it's a, it's a distraction. And I know like, it's just like, there are too many p- people poo-pooing on people for, for, that are like, Oh, you're focusing on the wrong thing. But really we are focusing on the wrong thing. Like this isn't the first time Donald Trump has called the press, the enemy, like, this is this is a, a a rational and predictable escalation of of things he's been saying for a long time. So to me, it was just it was a distraction. Uh, but meanwhile, right. meanwhile, you know, he's also talked about like it, it's clear that like he has no idea how the government works or what his actual powers as the chief executive of the United States are. Because he keeps throwing around things like I'm going to use the National Guard on the border, which he can't do legally, um, and uh, so it's he is, I guess, becoming more and more clear he's not a genius. He reminds me of, <laughs> <laughs> he reminds me of when I was a kid. I was, you know, I had a, I inherited this huge collection of like National Geographic magazines, and I remember reading an article when I was younger about Jane Goodall's um, career in Africa studying chimpanzees, and. Oh, yeah. uh, there was this one chimp who he was in a, a troop and he was older. He wasn't very strong. He'd always kind of lived on the periphery of the, the little chimp community. And so he was, he definitely was not the alpha male. And one day this chimp found out and, you know, chimpanzees are a very hierarchical um, little com- a society, I guess, if you want to call it that. But this, this chimp, this peripheral old chimp that everybody ignored 
uh, as this weird guy who lived on the outskirts. Um, he came across <laughs> two, two five-gallon jugs of water, like, but they are empty. So it's these giant five-gallon jugs, plastic jugs that were empty. And he realized that if he tried to approach females to mate and one of the other more dominant males tried to chase him off, he realized that if he banged the water jugs together, it would scare the males away. And so he was able... <laughs> He was able to use these empty jugs to work his way to the top of the, the societal order. And he became the alpha chimp by just making a ton of noise. So anytime he was he was confronted or challenged by another male, he would just bang these these milk, these water jugs together and scare everybody into submission and they would leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> and then that worked. That worked until somebody else till so, till another male stole his water jugs. <laughs> and and he was promptly like they they beat the crap out of him and ostracized him. The moral of this story is is that Donald Trump isn't a genius. He's not. He hasn't gotten where he is because he's a genius. He's gotten where he is because he found two empty five gallon water jugs. And anytime we try to confront him, he just or challenge him or, <laughs> or point out a, an actual scandal, he just bangs his water jugs together, and we get distracted by the water jugs. Um, and he'll stay there for as long as we focus on the noise instead of focusing on what he's actually doing. So did far more bananas and were and had far greater net worth than the other chimp. Um, he was trying to he was trying to sell shoddy products to the other chimps that were designed by that were designed by uh, you know poorly paid poorly played poorly paid employees um, yeah. and had a bad hair and had a, a silly toupee. So. Um, no, it's true. I think between now and whenever the first, because here we are in the first month of a presidency, in the first, basically, the, so it's been, it hasn't been quite a month. 20, 21 um, days. 21 days. Right. In the first month of presidency, the, the, the elected, air quotation mark, elected president is below 40% approval rating, right? Gallup mm. dropped him down to 39%. The first time in the history of Gallup polls that a president has dropped below 50, dropped below 40%. Uh, in a poll in his first month in office ever. Yeah. Um, he came he came into office through the Harvard of white supremacy electoral college victory after <laughs> losing by three million votes. And on top of that, we uh, we find ourselves in a moment where he's totally unable to work on legislation because he, like you said, he knows nothing about public policy. And he, you know, the his his allies, his short-term allies in Congress, their main goal, their main topic repealing health insurance, taking away health insurance from anywhere from 20 million to 59 million Americans would be catastrophic. Yeah. So we're at this weird standstill in the first month of a presidency, which is typically the, the time this is the most consequential legislation and enjoys a short honeymoon of popularity. And none of that is the case. Yeah. Right. Like you said, it, there's not some secret master plan. He's just a guy that doesn't have any skills and doesn't know anything about public policy. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and his response to the his his ineffectiveness is predictable, right? It's to blame someone else. It's right. not his fault. It's not the Republicans' fault. It's the media's fault. And that if you if you place too much faith in the media, then you're part of the problem. Yeah. Which I can't say if I no, was I, in, if I was in his position, I'd probably do the same thing too. Yeah, it's worked up to this point. Why would you change anything, right? No. Why would you Why would you Why would you go against the playbook that has worked at least for a short period of time for you personally? You know, whatever happens to Republicans in Congress, that's up to them, right? Yeah, that cuts both ways. So anyway. Yeah, and that, that brings us to our 
you know, our, the first article that Trump's short-term allies are Republicans, the Republican establishment in Washington. So Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, right? And so they're, they're his allies because they believe that Donald Trump will allow them to accomplish their long-standing goal of cutting taxes on the rich. But what's interesting now is that that Trump has, has become so inept and so unpredictable that he's now becoming a liability to the Ryan budget. Jonathan Chait wrote an article. He argues that the Republican plan, the most unifying goal for the Republicans, has been to reduce taxes for the rich and that Paul Ryan's $3 trillion tax cut, um, which is based on eliminating the inheritance tax, reducing the top tax rate, eliminating capital gains tax and slashing funding to education, healthcare, and social welfare. Basically, this is a plan that'll behoove the, or to assist the rich that this plan, um, is probably not going to, it, it'll be passed, but it probably won't be permanent. It'll probably be another 10 year long tax cut like the Bush tax cuts. Um, but he made a, he made a few points. He's, um, so basically, the Republicans, even though they're in power, they don't have enough Senate votes to pass the Ryan budget, the $3 trillion tax cut um, without a filibuster. And so they'll have to pass it through the budget reconciliation process, which is how the Democrats passed um, the Affordable Care Act. Um, however, if they, they take it to budget reconciliation, they have to abide by the, the Byrd rule, which essentially says that it can't increase the federal deficit 10 years after its passage. And quite frankly, when you cut $3 trillion in taxes, you're going to increase the federal deficit. There's no way around it. And then Chape points out that there's there's three ways that the Republicans can kind of do alchemy with the math to make it seem like their tax cuts won't affect the budget or affect the deficit. And the big one of the big ones was the border adjustment tax, which is basically a tariff. And the Republicans don't want to call it a tariff because they're against tariffs philosophically. Um, but this is essentially a tax on imported goods. And if it found, sounds familiar, it's because that's what Trump has been saying about, you know, that's his big trade policy, right? It's probably one of the trade policies that you and I come closest to agreeing with him on. Right. But again, he would never enact it in a way that you and I would find useful i guess and it would and it would never benefit any group of people other than uh other than to basically serve as like you said an accounting mechanism alchemy to right. shift money around to 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 gear up for the next upward redistribution of wealth yeah it benefits yeah. nobody yeah but you know and chate was arguing you know he was well not arguing but chate was pointing out that the more he talks about a border adjustment tax without actually having a plan in place the more dangerous he becomes politically because if you tried to pass a border adjustment tax and you did it poorly, like he, like everything else he's tried to enact, whether it be immigration reform or whatnot, it could really screw up the party long term. Yeah, his main example is Walmart. What would yeah. you say to the Walmart? Yeah, like good God, that would be disastrous. Yeah, for the and not just Walmart, but you know any retailer because so many retail, so much of what we have on the retail market is imported, right? So it would be Walmart, Best Buy, and Target. Um, mm -hmm. Anybody. Uh, you know, even Donald Trump himself, you know, we, the the much lampooned ties made in China, right? The Trump ties made in China. <laughs> it's incredibly unpopular. And, you know, the, the guy that came who's been kind of the hardest, one of the loudest critics of the Trump tariff is your favorite Republican, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, because <laughs> you know, he represents the Waltons and, and Walmart. And he Cotton went as far as to say that 
the border adjust Trump's border adjustment tax, and uh, it's actually, excuse me, Trump doesn't really have a name on it besides I want to tax things that are imported. Paul Ryan is calling it a border adjustment tax uh, because he needs it to make his budget work. And Tom Cotton said it's quote some ideas uh, are are so stupid that only an intellectual would believe them, which I find hilarious. <laughs> Because first of all, it's Tom Cotton attacking one of his own, and it's also Tom Cotton acting like Paul Ryan is some sort of intellectual. <laughs> and and Tom Cotton, uh, self-deprecating humor, Harvard Law School graduate. But yeah, you're right. I, yeah. Pointy head. Yeah, <laughs> classic. Yeah, and uh, so the other way. So basically, Chank points out with this this disastrous tax cut um, that you have to do a lot of voodoo. Uh, to come up with any type of forecast that would say that that their their budget would not blow up the federal de uh, deficit to levels we haven't seen ever before, and so there's the budget adjustment tax. Ryan also believes that by repealing Obamacare, they can eliminate 1.2 trillion dollars in taxes. This, of course, is not likely because the GOP can't get its shit together. They don't have a plan to repeal and replace. And they know that they can't just repeal it because that would be incredibly unpopular. Um, so they probably won't be able to get that done. And then the third way is dynamic scoring, which is just playing weird economics. Uh, they believe that if you cut taxes, that the the economy will grow. So Trump said this on the campaign trail. He said, "I want to, I want to cut three trillion dollars in taxes, and it'll blow it. the The economy will grow like you've never seen it before, and that has never happened." In fact, all the evidence, all of history points otherwise, that when you cut taxes, it's actually detrimental to the deficit, it's detrimental to the budget, and it's de de detrimental to the uh, economy. To, to hear people talk about it, and again, as if it's some sort of legitimate argument, dynamic scoring means you make a different projection, and it's impossible yeah. to fact check. It's, it, right. it, 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 it makes the task of verifying data impossible. When Stephen Moore at the Wall Street Journal or Larry Kudlow on CNBC or any other goofy white person who loves Ronald Reagan says, well, we have dynamic scoring. That means it's true, right? And then it becomes this argument between journalists to say, well, we fact checked that and we don't have we don't have an answer. Again, one side says that the sun rises in the east. Uh, others disagree. Right. right. Like there's there's no way to verify that through normal fact checking. And so we're left with the assertion that there's just no way to know. Right. Well, I mean, we have, to uh, give it an, we have to give it another chance on top of what we did with George sure. W. Bush and Ronald Reagan. And those were. Well, I mean, it, to, to them, to Republicans, the economy is like Tinkerbell. Right. If you do, if the economy doesn't revive, it's because you weren't clapping ha loud enough and you didn't believe in it enough. So That's right. To yeah. Them, I mean, <laughs> we were clapping enough. <laughs> yeah. That makes it so to, to them. It's, you know, it's statistics and economics isn't really like a science or it's, it's, it's not really a, uh, well, it's not a science. It's more of an article of faith, right? That's as, all, that's all trickled down on economics is. As Alan Greenspan famously said, uh, there's no reason to think that the housing market will taper off right? we're not in, we're not in any <laughs> position to say that housing market prices will diminish over time. We have no reason to think that there's a recession on the way. Everyone is a genius until Goldman Sachs tells you bad news. Right. So, I anxiously await Stephen Moore, Larry Kudlow, and Paul Ryan's assessment after the next great housing crisis or banking uh, or banking crisis. But look, you know, the, 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 I guess, and that goes back to to Chait's larger point, 
is that the tax cuts are coming and whether or not they're permanent or they only last for 10 years, the rich will get paid. Mm-hmm. Yep. When, the, when, the economy ta- when the economy tanks, it's not going to be the rich who gained a bunch of money from all these tax cuts. Uh, the rich aren't the ones who are going to get harmed by this. It's going to be working class and middle class people like you and me who dared to invest our savings in houses uh, and, and take out loans to go to school. Um, and try to raise families in this thing. It's going to be us. I mean, we're the ones who are going to get killed by this when it, when it comes around because history tells us that that this type of economic policy does nothing but create bubbles that will burst. Well, and, and again, you know, this is a corollary, and he didn't necessarily invest in I Maybe I uh, overinvest in it in this podcast, but uh, <laughs> conservatives <laughs> are willing to take a lot of hits. Maybe I maybe I harp on this too much. We can discuss that too. You can send us You can send us your hate mail about that too if you want. <laughs> um, but conservatives are willing to take substantial ideological hits and defeats on other projects in order to smash social insurance and pass massive upward redistributions of wealth, yeah. right? George W. Bush, perfect example, was perfectly willing to absorb humiliating public defeats about his reaction to Hurricane Katrina, about his handling of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, about his appointments who were obviously incompetent criminals. Who, destro- who, did, who destroyed everything they touched, who tried to criminalize voting in the Department of Justice and couldn't, and then Karl Rove fired them for that. They were perfectly willing to absorb low, you know, low 30s, high 20% approval ratings as long as they passed massive tax cuts in 2001 and 2003. Right. And that's the important, they have a monomaniacal focus on this, and it is very true. They will, the, the donors will get paid, and if we lose on other fronts, if we don't get to build a wall because none of them really believe that, and it's a seven-year-old solution, right, that would cut off their supply of slave labor, they're willing to take those hits because what's important is that Sheldon Adelson gets his tax cut. And that, yeah. And that's the only thing that holds anyway. them together. I mean, the Republican Party is less of an ideology as it is a cabal of rich people trying to get paid. I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. It, when you when they talk about and again you can go into the baffler there's an article about the about this that republicans there is no such thing as right-wing populist like it, rich people can't yeah. be populist and, and right-wingers can't be populist it's just it's an oxymoron popular popular policies ideas right. that are popular not not uh again not massive upward redistributions of wealth right yeah or you know not just ideas that are popular but ideas that will benefit the the vast majority of citizens and that's that's right. that's not Republicans have no interest in that. I mean, they right. say they do, but when you look at it, you know, if we, when you look at their policies in the mouth, it's just like it, it's very clear what they want. And so you could be like Marco Rubio, and you can come from a meager background, uh, and you can talk about how much you have in common with the you know with with the everyday Joe, but ultimately he wants to get rich people a tax cut so he can get himself a cushy job after he's beat. Or after he retires from the Senate, a, I mean, a product of Sheldon Adelson's political contributions. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, ultimately their policies are built on the hope that, uh, you know, by helping the right people, they too can get rich, and that, you know, that if we treat if we treat the one percent well, that maybe they'll pick a few more of us plebes to to lift up and elevate out of our poverty. So I'm still waiting on that call from Shark Tank. I still have to get on that. I still have to get on the show, man. Right. And I mean, this goes, you know, one of Barry's big mistakes too, you know, with the stimulus was, you know, they thought by, by bailing out the banks, uh, it would allow the banks to give out more loans and help everyday people 
keep their houses once their houses went underwater. And if you believe in trickle down economics, that's that's sound. That's a sound theory that if you let the banks have money, if you bail them out, that that wealth will trickle down because they'll be more free with their, uh, you know, with with their with the money that they have on hand. But that never happened. They they took the money and they made it harder for everyday people to get loans. As Steve as Steve Carell Steve Carell's character in The Big Short said it. I have a feeling that in a few years people are going to be doing what they always do in the economy tanks. They would be blaming immigrants and poor people. They're probably <laughs> going to be blaming immigrants and poor people pretty soon. Oh, man. That's a great movie, by the way. Damn you, Michael Lewis. <laughs> All right. So enough of budget talk. I know that's everybody's favorite, <laughs> favorite topic. Uh, so uh, let's go to nerds. Two nominally white guys talking about James Baldwin. <laughs> so uh yeah if you i guess if you travel in the same the same circles um uh, that we do online uh you've probably heard of a new uh, documentary coming out about james baldwin uh, one of the foremost african-american intellectuals of the 20th century uh the documentary is called i am not your negro it's narrated by samuel jackson in a very non-samuel jackson way if any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. Most of the white Americans I've ever encountered surely have nothing whatever against Negroes. That's really not the question. Really a kind of apathy and ignorance. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. In America, I was free only in battle, but never free to rest. We need to take action, any kind of action, by any means necessary. They needed us to pick the cotton, and now they don't need us anymore. Now they don't need us, they're going to kill us all off. There are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, is why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. And you gotta find out why. And the future of the country depends on that. Carson, you sent me a review of the movie uh, by Ishmael Muhammad. It's entitled The Misunderstood Ghost of James Baldwin, How Critics Misunderstand James Baldwin's Influence on Today's Great Black Nonfiction Writers. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Again, it's it's beautifully written for, for a movie review. It's it's excellent. Um, we have special interest in it because you and I are both big fans of Ta-Nehisi Coates and Michelle Alexander. After Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote Between the World and Me, he was lauded as uh, the literary son of James Baldwin. 
and that caused a lot of controversy because it's like you know who is the foremost african-american intellectual in our lives um and a lot of people are divided on that but this review tries to address it tries to address why trying to find james baldwin's uh heir is kind of a i guess it's it's kind of a um a fool's a, errand a, a fool's errand a futile effort <laughs> i was uh, the word i was looking for was uh a, a chaotic or don quixote yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ch- chasing old wind uh yeah uh, tilting at windmills yep yeah yeah so uh yeah what, so what what did you take away from the from the review so uh, highlighted important important paragraph important sentence uh right that we come away with from the, it's right in the first paragraph history is not immutable a fate to which we must eventually all succumb rather it is a practice we must always conduct in the present tense reshaping the past in order to imagine desired futures and the themes that he got to over the course of the review you know give give it some strategic thought give it some consideration and you understand why that's important he talked about the fact that people like Michelle Alexander, Tanasi Coates have sort of written about how American history is a, is on a repeat, is on a loop of different out, on a, is on a loop of of similar outcomes with different tactics for people of color in in the country. You know, chains have been replaced by handcuffs and prison bars. Um, you know, slavers' whips and dogs have been replaced with police officers brutalizing black people in major urban areas on right. cell phone videos but you know reimagining those those outcomes as you know talking about them and saying that we need to change them right we need to get we need people like Michelle Alexander Thomas Coates saying we need to get past that we need to, yeah. we are in a we're in a dark time that reminds us of other dark times that is that in itself is a form of reshaping history so that you can imagine a better outcome in the future so that you can break free of that negative feedback loop people always recognize that when they read important books like the new Jim Crow or between the world and me or Tanasi Coates's reparations article in the Atlantic. Um, it's something to think about. And just, you know, he, what he talked about, what I think was most important in the article is that you get a sense of, you get a sense that James Baldwin would not necessarily give up, right? He right. was very depressed about the way that the sixties transpired and his part that he played in it. But, you know, uh, you you have to you have to move beyond that. You have to think about what the future could look like with a better result. Um, mm-hmm. And you sh- you know and even though it's a even though it's a useful tactic to sort of frame a debate to frame a, a, a series of outcomes as saying this is all you know nothing is prologue. This is all bad news mm-hmm. uh, from the past. You should definitely think of it in a lens that is about reshaping the future and that history is used and reused for for modern contemporary purposes. Obviously, that appeals greatly to Alan, who is something of a history enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that was so. That was one of the big things I, I took away too. Right, is the you know Muhammad writes that Baldwin's writing ultimately would challenge the arguments made by um, Alexander, who make a lot of linkages between the black experience today and the black experience in the past. That the history of blackness in America is endless repetitions of slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, which white supremacists massage into subtler forms of control, right? And so that there's a, you know, that that American history, especially the history of American race, just constantly rhymes, right? And that Baldwin, the thing that that made Baldwin so profound um, and so troublesome that that he's a difficult person to put into a box and to and to fit 
into American thought is that he challenged this idea that history defines us, ultimately defines us, um, that you could take that history and you can stand on it and you could create a future for yourself. And that's what he ultimately tried to do, that his, his self-exile in France was partially an escape, but it was also an attempt to, to redefine himself, right? And Mohammed writes about, and you and I read um, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, his latest book, you know, in a letter to his son, he was trying to explain to his son why he moved to the family to Paris. It's because he wanted his son to be able to, to, to understand the past, what it meant to be African-American, but also to have a chance to escape that, that identity, right? Uh, to have the freedom to define himself as a person. Um, and it was something that he said he never had it as a child who grew up in inner city, Baltimore, he never had the opportunity to escape what it meant to be black um, because blackness is defined not by so much by, Af- well, it's defined by African-Americans, but it's also defined by people, white people who look at you and say you're black. Um, and that by extricating his family from America, he could go to, to Paris. And even though they have their own racial problems, that at least then he could separate himself um, from right. a blackness that was constructed for him, which fits the title. I'm not your Negro. You know, James Baldwin always said that he's like, I'm, he refused, he refused to be, uh, to be defined by an identity that was created, um, for him by white people. And also, um, by a kind of oppressive, uh, adherence to the legacy of of slavery and Jim Crow. Um, it's the, it's the best part. It's the best part of the preview. Not, uh, but you know, I'm not an N word. Yeah, but white people, but white people need to examine why they needed an N word in the first place. Right. Yeah. And that is the that is that is the story of America, and mm-hmm. that is what Americans have to come to terms with before they answer that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's you know that's the challenging too is that you know um, if people delved into the racial critiques offered by movements like Black Lives Matter, um, and the Black Power Movement of the '60s and '70s and '80s. Um, if they actually looked into that they and, and interrogated the role race has in the construction of an American identity, right? Um, that as as non-black people, as non-black Americans, the the existence of uh, the black American, the black person, is so intrinsic and upon our own identity. Like we are, as an Asian American myself, right? Uh, as an Asian American, a, a a big part of my identity is this idea that be Asian, but don't be black. Right. As a white person, it's, (laughs) you can be poor, you can be a redneck or you could be, you could be a a white person on welfare, but don't be black. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And so black lives matter challenges and challenges us to interrogate our own identities as Americans and to, and to understand the role racism uh, plays in our own, identity as American citizens, because it's so fundamental to our our country's history. You can't have America without African-Americans and you can't have an American identity without a long history of oppression of African-Americans, no matter, you know, you you can be white, black, Hispanic, or Asian American, um, that, that legacy affects us all. So what do we do with that? And that's what Baldwin challenged us to do. And quite frankly, he, he didn't have a good answer. Um, yeah, and, no, he and didn't. Yep. 
and that's why it's so confusing um you know because at times he seems so cynical or or that he abandoned it um to live on to live in a villa in france with a with a bunch of orange trees but it's you know those are there's nothing simple about american racism similarly ta-nehisi coates always always concludes his presentations i i don't have the answers yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer, so don't, don't look to me for that, for that single conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the one paragraph that you know uh, that I took away from this one that I really liked uh, from Muhammad's review was, uh, you know, he's exploring the question: Is Tanahisi Coates the literary son of Baldwin? Um, and he writes, for writers like Coates, Jasmine Ward, and Rachel uh, Kazi. Gassan, excuse me if I can't pronounce that right, Baldwin is a specter that elicits an ambivalent mix of veneration and trepidation. This ambivalence is an occasion to strain against a traumatic model of history. Rather than taking that thesis as given, they interrogate it, forcing us to consider how black people can learn from the past without uncritically accepting our ancestors' fears, assumptions, and intellectual legacies. They want to explore the long shadows that slavery and Jim Crow cast on our present without standing in them. We might think of these writers as among a school of black nonfiction writers for which Baldwin is a problem as much as an interlocutor, a specter to which they return cyclically, almost compulsively, to both honor and decline. But by discussing these texts, mostly in terms of how similar they are to Baldwin, or whether or not they're deserving of Baldwin's mantle, certainly critics have committed the exact mistake that is that these works struggle to avoid, collapsing distinct historical moments into one. What I thought was so fascinating and moving about that was that, um, and if you've read Coates's book, you can see Baldwin's effects on his his thoughts of race and the black experience, right? Um, that the path forward, I guess, is, is, is self-liberation, um, from history, um, from racial thought that, that oppresses us. Um, that, that I guess the message that we should all take from this is that, you know, uh, black people shouldn't care, interrogate their race and their identity, but America, uh, you know, white Americans should too. And that ultimately we should choose to move beyond our history to aspire to a different and better future. Exactly. Right. But we can use that history. That history is problematic and that history is difficult. Um, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't be pinned down by it, which I guess, I mean, when you look at the most kind of venomous and outspoken opponents to racial progress, they're also the people who tout the, the, the fantastic value of heritage. Um, and so those are people who are ultimately tied by the past, but it's, you know, I guess, I guess what Muhammad might argue is that it's not just like uh, white supremacists and conservatives who are who are um, who are tied to the past needlessly. It's also um, people of color and progressives. Yep, uh, no, we are all also are. tied to the past. Yeah, we all very much are. Yep. And that's I mean that's the thing is like when you read between the world and me, it's a letter written to to his son, um, and it's also like what can a white person or an Asian person or a Hispanic person learn from this book? Well, there's all, there's a lot because it's, he offers Coates offers another way, an alternative way to think about race and, and personal identity as an American. Um, and I, of course it's told through the eyes of a black man, but um, again, it's that, that school of thought 
that Muhammad was talking about. It's a school of thought that I hope more and more people come to try to understand. By all means, go see Raul Peck's movie and, uh, you know, go back and reread Tanasi Coates. Yeah, the movie's called I'm Not Your Negro. There, I, I, was, I went to the website and there's like six theaters in St. Paul, Minneapolis, St. Paul that are showing it. The closest one to me is like Kansas City. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, it's, uh, to be fair, it's only, it's only like 35 miles away. So I would love to go see it. It, it looks fantastic. What, what's interesting about the movie, just, uh, you know, film wise, is it was uh, partially funded and produced by Amazon. Uh, so Amazon's stepping it up. Jeff Bezos must have an agenda. Oh Lord! Well, and Trump and Trump has said that he's going after Jeff Bezos. So is he? Well, there was that whole argument about the Washington Post before, right? Back in the campaign. That's right. Washington yeah. Post. So maybe maybe Jeff Bezos is worried, or maybe his billions of billions of dollars insulates him from real consequences. I don't know what the answer is. Well, well, I can't I can't speak for him. He lives in a a stratosphere that I can't hope to attain. So. That's true. He owns a newspaper. He'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> he, he owns a lot of things. He owns a basketball team. Yep, that he does. All right. So our next topic uh, is white welfare. Uh, the Washington Post had an article that was republished. I saw it in the uh, the Star Tribune. Or what's what's the paper up in it's Minneapolis? Saint, it's the Minneapolis Star Tribune, right? Yeah. Yep, Minneapolis. Yeah, St. Paul Pioneer Press is on the other okay. side of the river in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Yeah. So I, I saw that in there. Um, so uh, this article reported that a study that was released on Thursday reported that working class whites are the biggest beneficiaries of federal poverty reduction policies, despite the kind of widespread notion that it's blacks and Hispanic people who are on welfare and who benefit most. From welfare, the study found that 44% of white people who received food stamps, welfare, housing subsidies, tax credits, home energy assistance, school lunch assistance, and social security, 44% of the white people were lifted out of poverty compared to only 35% of minorities. So, uh, the argument uh, of uh, this article, the article was written by Tracy Jan. The argument is, is essentially that the people who benefit the most or the people that have the most to lose from uh, Trump and the Republicans desire to cut social welfare programs are the very people who elected Donald Trump to the presidency. That family in Paducah, Kentucky, man, they're going to become national celebrities. The, uh, <laughs> they are. No, it's, I mean, it's the only way to think of it is that they will have to, maybe they'll be able to pay their medical bills with enough expenses and fees, you know, sort of basically trips paid for by news media organizations. Um, Cause it, you know, the father of the family who had uh, dialysis and kidney problems, but um, yeah, they're going to have to explain why they voted for a man who promised to make sure they didn't have health insurance. Right. And who's, who's promising to make sure that their neighbors don't have access to food stamps yeah. and uh, to make sure that they either don't get child, uh, children's health insurance or WIC. So yeah, um, it's going to be very, and we we still live in what Ira Katz Nelson refers to as a time of affirmative action for white people. Yeah. Right. Uh, so again, there's your there's your other nerdy book reference for the day. Again, <laughs> listeners, feel feel free to hate us for Jimmy Buffett uh, bile, but go read Ira Katz Nelson. Why this is we live in a complex media universe. So again, I know you're going to say mean things about us, but still go read Ira Katz. Still still go read Ira Katz Nelson and accept the fact that we have. A disparity in the way that uh, white poverty functions versus the way black poverty functions. 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, you know, the, the thing that I found that struck me uh, more than the fact that, you know, the people that will be hurt the most by Trump's policies are his his supporters. Um, the thing that I, I noted um, is that that the study found that white people are more likely to escape poverty with government assistance than black or Hispanic families, right? And racists, I guess, would say that this is because white people are more likely to use welfare or the social safety net responsibly and effectively. But, you know, I think that this is actually evidence that it's a symptom of, of deeper economic and social inequities. Or in other words, that white welfare recipients don't face the same entrenched systematic challenges faced by black and Hispanic people trying to escape poverty. Yeah, it's a quantitative and qualitative difference, which Tanafsi Coates writes about a lot, right. is that white white people poverty is different than the people of color white people poverty. So, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's what I thought was interesting about this, this too, is that they it wasn't they didn't just base their study on people who are on food stamps and welfare and housing subsidies, but it's also like education tax credits, home energy assistance, school lunch assistance that, you know, if you, if you went to school and you took out a federal loan, you are, hate to say it, a welfare queen, right? But, <laughs> but white people, white people who take out student loans are more likely to graduate and get good paying jobs because of those student loans. African-American and Hispanic people are more likely to take out those loans, graduate or not graduate actually, but if they do graduate to get subpar jobs. Yeah. Right? And less, and are less likely to be employed than white people with not without college degrees, which is shocking, but still quantitatively and qualitatively different, mm -hmm. right? Illustrates the differences between the kind of poverty that uh, exists in America and that you are, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you have a substantially longer and higher ladder to climb. Yeah. If you are a person of color. Yep. Well, so I guess to wrap this up, I mean, to, to uh, instead of focusing, I know, and I know it's outrageous. Trump's Trump's press conference is outrageous, and his permanent campaign. As we've been recording this, he's been giving probably a long rally speech, a campaign rally speech <laughs> in Melbourne, Florida. Um, but instead of focusing on that, we really need to focus on things like the Ryan budget, things like. Um, how the Republicans and Donald Trump are betraying their their voter their, their populist base, I guess, because with these you, are the, with little or no political with, with right. little or no political consequences. But, and and so instead of driving, we all know how reprehensible and how distasteful and how ugly Donald Trump is as an American president. We all get that. That's not something Democrats shouldn't focus on. That activists shouldn't focus on that because we all. The people who are going to vote against Donald Trump, they know that. The, re the reluctant Donald Trump voters, they know that. What they don't know yet is the economic pain, the racial pain, the, the, the gendered pain that they're going to bring. And they need to understand, and we need to be the ones to convince them that the people to blame for this aren't other poor people, aren't immigrants, but they're Donald Trump and the Republicans. Um, and so we should focus on these things. Uh, we should focus on on destroying the social safety or the social safety net. Yeah, instead of instead of Donald Trump yelling at the media, because quite frankly, that's good politics. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it is definitely, absolutely. So, well, uh, Carson, uh, to end the show, is there anything that you'll be looking forward to this week? Anything you're looking out for? Um, 
I'm definitely looking forward to the uh, next opportunity to talk about legislation, actual legislation, not just decrees uh, handed down from the White House, but um, actual legislation to see where the Ryan budget takes us because that's what, like what you said, that's what we should have to focus on. But no, what, what we should definitely be looking forward to is the next piece of legislation and to see where we actually go in this presidency and how it affects actual people. So yeah. um, maybe maybe the agenda will get off the ground or maybe we'll just get another executive order. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to whether or not Gonzaga will finish their regular season undefeated and uh, if Duke will finally get beat and end their hot streak. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm looking forward to March Madness. Yeah, well, and speaking of escapism in Trump's America. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Uh, I'm Alan Messer and my co-host, Carson Starkey. Good uh, to be we'll, here. Yeah. We will see you next week, and hopefully I can dedicate more time to upping our podcast game and getting a guest on our show. So keep listening. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, feel free to suggest us to your friends and we will try to do our part all right thanks everybody thanks there was no room for doubting that she had met a savior who did a wonder's tale every time she doubted him she start to think about him the man that gave her that water lord and it was not in the well yes gave her water jesus gave her water jesus gave her water i wanna let his praise swell say we gave that woman water gave her that loving lasting water 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 loving water and it was not in the well